Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned into Future City, a monthly conversation that changes the conversation about Baltimore from what's wrong to what's next. Today in the show, when we think of creating wealth, we think of buying a house, going to college, investing in retirement. But for many people of color, this is an impossible dream. A history of financial and social discrimination have pushed minority communities to the fringes, leaving them scrambling to catch up to their much wealthier white peers. One of the difficulties is that even as black household incomes have continued to rise, their wealth hasn't, and there is a difference. A New York University researcher explained it in this way. A high-earning married black household have, on average, less wealth than low-earning married white households. This has to do with the fact that many more white families have a long history of building wealth over generations. They've owned homes, they've passed money down to their children, and established a safety net for future generations. Most families of color are starting at square one. And a history of housing and financial discrimination means they haven't had a chance to build a legacy of wealth for their children to inherit. This isn't to say that all communities of color are struggling. In fact, in places like Atlanta, Georgia, and Washington, D.C., there's an active, thriving black upper middle class. This largely has to do with the fact that both of these cities are home to historically black colleges that provided minority communities with an education as well as strong examples of stability, intentionality, and leadership. These are also cities that have actively pushed policies that enforced integration and diversification in housing and employment and asset development. So how do we get beyond the cliches and stereotypes and quote breaks about communities of color when talking about this complex issue? On today's show, we'll be speaking with guests on all aspects of this topic as we seek to understand how and why the racial wealth divide exists and what we can do to overcome it. Our first guest today is Jacinta Goda, Principal and Chief Strategy Officer of the Goda Group. She conducts research for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation's report, The Business Case for Racial Equity. Jacinta, thank you so much for joining us. Wes, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and to tell you about the upcoming report. It's really powerful, the fact that you are making, you know, this isn't, this isn't just, this isn't the moral case. This isn't the civil rights case. This is the business case. This is why everyone should care about a level of disparity in the way that we, uh, the way that we structure our economics. You know, Wesley, you're so right. And this is what's exciting about this report is that it does advance the narrative beyond that of, uh, including the social justice narrative, but adding to this this powerful economic argument. And I think that was one of the main purposes of the report, to deepen the understanding of what racial equity means to our nation as a critical strategy for sustained economic growth. And again, to provide leaders uh, and policymakers and those interested with useful information and a powerful narrative in uh, an economic argument about uh, advancing racial justice and some direction about where to make those strategic investments. So we're looking at it as a strategy document. So how are these disparities having a negative impact on our economy as a whole? Well, we certainly are. It is taking a big toll on our economy. 
But if we look at it just from an upside perspective, and it's not a sustainable toll, by the way, by 2050, our um, nation stands to realize about $8 trillion gain in the GDP by closing the U.S. racial equity gap. And when we say closing this gap, we mean lessening and ultimately eliminating disparities and opportunity differentials that impede the human potential and economic contributions of people of color. Beyond the significant increase in GDP, advancing racial equity can translate into meaningful increases in consumer spending and federal and local tax revenues and decreases in social services and health-related costs. Well, if we just take a look at consumer spending alone, racial equity would generate an additional $191 billion spent on food, $500 billion on housing, $52 billion on apparel, $259 billion on transportation, and $77 billion on entertainment each year. So it means bettering education, health, and other overall outcomes for those impacted by those policies and practices that are grounded in racial bias and, ra- and historical and structural racism and uh, have persisted for generations and whose effects are, we are, are, are still felt today. So one thing I think the report also shows is there are stark differences between the earnings of people of color and their white counterparts. Can you talk about uh, what the research showed around that and also what it means? Well, our economists are showing that uh, in the report that persons of color in the U.S., uh, the average earnings for persons of color in the U.S. is 63% of the average earnings of their white counterparts, and that's roughly 25000 per year versus 40000 per year. Hmm. That's significant. And that, that has, when you talk about that, that has real lasting implications on how fam- how people can raise their families. And also we look at the fact that this is something that has been well-baked into our larger, uh, into our larger economic system. Absolutely. Overall, again, $2.7 trillion in greater economic output uh, can be realized by closing this gap. And what's interesting is also when you see how all those different things intersect with one another. Uh, you know, we have a structure within this country that it rewards entrepreneurship, right? It, it rewards risk-taking. And I think there's a whole lot that we can then be said, and you can do a whole segment on, the, uh, on, uh, on how certain communities can and are almost taught to be more risk-averse than others for a collection of different reasons. But when you talk about the role that education plays, and education and economics will then play into this, how do we then have to rethink the way we are educating kids and educating communities when it comes to making our economics more inclusive? Well, certainly there are a couple of strategies that we know um, are extremely promising. And I think if we can look at it from a big picture perspective, it would be invest early. And more specifically, it means investing in early childhood education, early uh, childhood child care, and particularly focusing on children that are most at risk. But certainly early investment makes a lot of sense. Housing uh, makes, uh, is also a very important gateway strategy, and that is, uh, I think, taking a serious look at housing voucher programs. But I also want to go back to the entrepreneurship uh, question or comment that you made, and that is one of the strategies in the report 
that suggests that if we can grow minority entrepreneurship through expanding access to capital and business expertise, uh, there is a tremendous gain that can be uh, realized from that, not just for the entrepreneur, but for his family, and by extension, the community, and by extension, certainly the overall contribution to um, to the economics of, of the community in which that entrepreneur lives. And so we do believe that greater economic opportunity through business development is a very important strategy. We've been talking with Jacinta Goda about her work with the W.K. Kellogg Report, A Business Case for Racial Equity. Jacinta, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Now we're going to be speaking with Diedrich Asante Muhammad, a senior fellow leading the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at Prosperity Now and host of the Race and Wealth Podcast. Diedrich, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So first of all, can you explain the mission of Prosperity Now and the goals of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative? Sure. Prosperity Now is an organization. We just changed our name to Prosperity Now. It used to be called CSED, Corporation for Enterprise Development. It was created in 1979 with a focus on advancing uh, lower-income households, recognizing that income and employment, of course, important, uh, important pieces of a strong economic picture, were not the complete economic picture, that we needed to also have a focus on assets and wealth development. So it's bringing that a type of frame to the issues of how to strengthen financial security for a household. And about a couple years ago, I was at the NAACP along with uh, a co-worker, Lillian Singh, and we decided to come over to, at that time, Corporation for Enterprise Development, now called Prosperity Now, with the recognition on their side that they should have something that is particularly focused on racial wealth inequality and how that uh, inhibits uh, asset and wealth development and overall financial stability for communities of color. So we've been with them for the last couple of years and trying to advance that aspect of the work. And so specifically for the, uh, for the racial and wealth divide in Baltimore reporting, when was this authored and how did you go about conducting the research? Yeah, so we've developed uh, four racial wealth divide data profiles, what we call them, for Baltimore, Chicago, Miami, and New Orleans. And those four cities are the cities that we partnered with J.P. Morgan Chase in doing this uh, building high-impact nonprofits of color. You know, we have our understanding that there is this massive wealth inequality, economic inequality, particularly between African, particularly with African Americans and Latinos and Native Americans and white Americans. And we, and we recognize that part of that inequality is that even our institutions, our nonprofits, uh, our businesses don't have the same type of wealth and resources behind them. So we thought it would be important in these four cities to work with organizations of color, nonprofits of color, help raise uh, their profile, uh, highlight them to some of the best practices in nonprofit development as they are doing work on the ground to strengthen economic security for communities of color. We thought by strengthening these institutions, that's also a way of addressing uh, uh, wealth inequality, asset inequality. And so what were some of the most uh, important and interesting and telling uh, revelations that you found about Baltimore specifically? You know, one interesting thing about Baltimore is, you know, I, I live outside Baltimore. I live in Howard County and grew up in Howard County, uh, but go to mosque in Baltimore. I know a lot of people in Baltimore. And oftentimes people have this perception of, you know, that things are uniquely bad in Baltimore. What was interesting to me was that in terms of racial economic inequality, Baltimore has a little bit less racial economic inequality than cities like Miami, like Chicago, um, I think even New Orleans. And, uh, you know, what that is is that Baltimore 
as a whole is a much more working class city. In other major urban areas like, say, Chicago or Miami, the whites who live in those cities are very high income whites. While in Baltimore, you have a decent amount of more middle class whites, along with the middle class, working class and poor uh, African-American population. And so, again, the kind of revelation that we did a piece on this, myself with Kylie Patterson, who now is at John Hopkins University, did a piece about how Baltimore could become a model of advancing racial economic inequality because it's uniquely situated in a pretty high-income state where it's still you know, connected to the Washington, D.C. area where more and more jobs are growing. And so we believe with the right type of policy leads and right type of investment that actually Baltimore could, be, could become a city and one of the only cities that invests properly and helps bridge the real uh, and important uh, racial, economic, racial economic inequality that does exist. So I do see a good amount of hope and possibility uh, in Baltimore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, uh, one other question I have is, you know, one issue for many communities of color and, and particularly kind of this, this is the transition from being okay to wealth is how exactly your family can deal with those bumps that happen, right? You know, so, uh, you know, so even when they do establish some form of, of economic stability, uh, it can be precarious stability. It can be something where a sickness can get in the way. It can be a loss of a job can get in the way. Um, and where any kind of bump in the road can leave you with nothing. How are we thinking about, uh, how are we thinking about that bridge between, you know, the being okay to now being into the place where even the bumps can be sustained in a much more in a, in a much better platform, um, which is where for a lot of our families, uh, you know, we have not we're not still there yet. Yeah, and you know, and that's why we think a wealth framework is is help is helpful because too oftentimes people think of wealth as you know millions of dollars and not understanding that <coughs> wealth is any asset is, it, is is any money that you have that can help you get through a tough time. Or allows you to take advantage of a possible opportunity. So if you have, you know, if you only have $100 in savings, then your wealth goal should be to try to get $200 in savings by next month. And then, you know, move that up to $500 or $1,000. And also part of wealth is utilizing the resources around you. I just want to help highlight, you know, there, and there are nonprofit organizations out there that are here to help connect you to resources, maybe after-school care, education programs, maybe match savings accounts, all of these things that can help strengthen the resources you have. And so some of the, the organizations that we're working with, organizations like Bon Secours Community Work, Center for Urban Families, Druid Heights Community Development Corporation, the Latino Economic Development Center, Muse 360 Arts, and Urban Alliance. You know, look around you and see what nonprofits are there, what they have to offer, and how they can uh, help supplement the uh, meager resources you have. Because, again, that is how wealth is built, is leveraging the assets that are all around you. And oftentimes we're so busy going day to day, we don't recognize that there are things around us that could help us develop a more positive future. You listen to Future City and I'm Wes Moore. We've been speaking with Diedrich Asante Muhammad, who's a senior fellow leading the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at Prosperity Now and host of the Race and Wealth Podcast. This is a great conversation, Diedrich, and it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Look forward to talking with you again. Absolutely. Coming up, you might have seen her on HGTV, Spice Up My Kitchen, or on her syndicated show, Lauren Lake's Paternity Court. She's an attorney, designer, speaker, author, and musician. What Lauren Lake has to say about building wealth and influence. That's next. 
Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. So today on the show, we've been asking, what are keeping communities of color from building long-term wealth and achieving economic security? Now, unfortunately, there are far too few examples of economic prosperity in communities of color. And the truth is, that's not by accident. But without examples or guidance, for many people, the road to financial stability can be a rocky one. Now we're going to speak with another incredibly accomplished individual. Lauren Lake has worked as a TV host and commentator. She's sung backup vocals for multi-platinum selling artists, including Mary J. Blige and Diddy and Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg. She's also a licensed attorney, and she has her own daytime TV show, Lauren Lake's Paternity Court. She's also the author of the book, Girl, Let Me Tell You, and she's an in-demand motivational speaker. Here, Lauren, I'm almost out of breath saying your bio, and I know I've only covered a small portion of what you've accomplished, but it is truly an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, the, the resume can be exhausting, but I do believe in living a limitless life. There you go, and you and you and you and you demonstrate it daily. So we appreciate that. So, so thank you. So let me start by 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 sharing with the with the listener just a little more about you and your background. Where did you grow up, and what was your early life like? I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I was the uh, one of two children born to two educators. My mother and father both were. Um, they had their PhDs, and my mother was a college professor, and my father was a doctor of speech and language pathology and linguistics on the collegiate level, and then later went on to work for the Detroit public school system. Um, and you know, listen, I grew up like most people do in the Midwest with that, you know, that notion of you get you go to school, you get good grades, you get a good job, and you live a good life. And for some reason, I just always felt differently about the way I wanted to approach this life. I was always that zany little girl that was creative and intellectual, and I would always try to do more than one thing at once. And my parents just afforded me the room to do just that. You talk about education was a core part. You were raised by educators as well. Do you think that the system of education that we have currently, is it encouraging entrepreneurship is it encouraging the risk taking what were the where did you get that from did you get that from the educational system from you know how how did that process get ingrained in you absolutely not i i honestly can say i got it from my father my father always had an entrepreneurial instinct you know he was he was always thinking of something he could make and something he could sell and my father was like i said uh, he had his phd and he was a very successful man but my father would also have a a slew of lawnmowers, and he would take young boys out on the weekends and have them cut grass and show them how to make money. Uh, you know, my father, as he studied for his PhD, worked as a security guard at night to make extra money. He would always have things in, in, in the garage that he said he was going to create something with or make something. And, and, you know, people used to always say, oh, it's just an idea, but I got that entrepreneurial instinct in, in, from, from, from my dad. And, 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 and I think... What we don't learn in school is how to think outside of the box, how to get the wrong answer and know that sometimes the wrong answer leads you to the right place. And I think what we're so focused on in our school system is is getting it right, getting the grade, taking the test. 
instead of learning, more importantly, the big picture of where our educations and where these studies will lead us and what we learn. Um, you know, I was not taught in law school all of these, you know, non-traditional ways I would be able to use my law degree. You know, who would think, you know, 20-something years ago when I went to law school that, you know, um, I would be the judge of a syndicated talk show where I would be using the law to empower people who are, you know, in paternity situations. That was outside of the box for even when I was in law school. So I think what we're doing in schools, quite frankly, in many ways, are a disservice to what what people are taught to do. I mean, even as I as I look now, my son is seven. He's in a school now where they work in a collaborative way, and I love that so much because at the end of the day, that's what we do. We work in teams. We work with people. And but when I was growing up, school was all about sit at your desk, don't look at anyone's paper, don't talk to anybody else about the question or the answer because you have to get the answer right. Now I see in my son's school them talking about in which ways we, can we collaborate to come with a new solution to this problem. And I think that's what we need more of. Well, it's, and you've actually made a, made a clear demonstration of that even in your career because you've also had a very core focus on using your platform for empowerment to, to, you know, to provide entrepreneurial opportunities for other people coming behind and, who are, and having a real core focus on wealth creation in communities of color. Uh, why was that important and what are the things that you think that we all collectively can do when it comes to supporting one another and supporting communities of color when it comes to this idea of wealth creation? When it comes to living limitless lives, and that's what I travel around the country talking to people about, limitless living. It's about taking the obstacles that we have in our lives and learning how to overcome them. And whether that obstacle is lack of capital, lack of funding, lack of education, low self-esteem, a bad relationship, a dead-end job, uh, a paternity question, whatever our perceived limitations are, how do we hurdle over those limitations to live um, a limitless life? Also, in terms of limitless living, I also talk about the same you know, theory and thought, but applied to our financial uh, perspective and positioning in life, meaning what are the issues in our lives? What are the gifts? What are the things we take for granted each and every day that if we really develop, we could turn into multiple income, income streams? You know, people used to say to me all the time, be careful, don't be a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. And I would say, what do you mean? You know, oh, you, are you going to be a singer? Are you going to be a lawyer? Are you going to be a designer? Are you going to be a speaker? What are you going to choose? And I'd say, oh, well, why do I have to choose? Why can't I develop multiple income streams using each one of my gifts? And so it has been my sincere desire and, and passion in life is to help women, help people find out how to level up in their lives, in their business, and in their finances by using their God-given gifts to create multiple income streams. I always say, if, you don't, if you're not activating a side hustle right now, if there's something you're not doing on the side from your normal job that you can start earning extra money, more money with, you're missing the boat. There is an empire living in each and every one of us, but it's up to us to activate that. So I've been speaking with the very talented attorney, TV personality, and speaker, Lauren Lake. Lauren, we are so grateful for your example and so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, Baltimore has had a surge of younger, mostly white residents moving into the city in the past few years. 
What does this mean for the city's future and economy? Plus, communities of color consistently struggle with higher interest rates and higher insurance fees. How a history of discriminatory practices continues to hold minority communities back. That's next. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance. Bring your challenges. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. The topic on this show today, creating wealth for communities of color and the unique challenges facing minority families when it comes to creating a stable future. So we've already talked a little bit about Baltimore today, and it's a city that is majority people of color, but it has some unique opportunities to grow wealth and opportunity. But now we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the entrenched racial divides here in our city and what can be done about them. So I'm excited to be joined here by Richard Clinch, who is the director of the Jacob France Institute at the University of Baltimore. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you tell me a bit about the Jacob France Institute and uh, what they do, what type of studies they're doing, and what's the focus of the organization? Sure. The Jacob France Institute is the sponsored research unit of the American School of Business at University of Baltimore. We've been around about 30 years, and we focus on uh, two areas, economic and workforce development, uh, where we do studies on evaluating and planning for uh, economic development and workforce development projects. And then we also ho- host what's called the Baltimore Neighborhood Indicators Alliance, BNEA, which collects data on uh, the economic, uh, socioeconomic, and demographic performance of the city and has been doing so for about 15 years. And you've been in Baltimore for 20 years now? It's been about 20 years. Okay. So. Came from Pittsburgh. Came from Pittsburgh, yes. All right. We will not hold that against you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and you're an economist by training. Yes. Okay. So can you talk about the economic health of Baltimore right now? Well, I think the economic health of Baltimore City is improving. I mean, the whole region has done very well. The whole state has done very well historically. I mean, as a region and a state, we're heading for some hard times with the expected drawdown in federal spending. But the city hasn't shared in that prosperity for, for decades. And you know, really since the depth of the Great Recession, the city has been in recovery. The population you know, decline has stopped unless you listen to the most recent census figures, uh, which we don't at, at Benia and at Jacob France think the city's not declining in population recently. And the city's uh, job losses have bottomed out and the city started to gain jobs. So the, the, the issue is Baltimore City's economic health is better than it's been after you know, 20, 30 years of straight declines. So when, we, when you talk about the measure of disparity, though, that exists within the city's economic futures and the, and the, and the city's economic presence. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I think uh, there was a disparity in – what I'd mentioned was a disparity in performance between the, the city and the, the region yes. and the state. So, I mean, the, the, the city has been – because of, uh, of the question of, of, of flight of the middle class out of the city, the city became an area of concentrated poverty. And as a result, the workforce here had lower skills, uh, lower en- work, uh, engagement in work activities. And as a result, as the state grew, they weren't attached to this growth that occurred. So that was really the, the disparity, uh, which was really driven by, by income and you know, flight of the middle class from the city. And so when we're talking about flight of the middle class, when we, when we add a racial lens onto that, what have been the trends that we've seen? What have been the different dynamics? And how has that then influenced the larger trends that we've seen throughout the city? So I think the issue was of, of concentrated African-American poverty on the east and west side of the cities. I mean, the, 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 along the waterfront, the city always did well. The, the northern part of the city always did okay. 
um, you know, you have these these pockets of concentrated poverty, and you know, it, it really focused on East and West Baltimore, but there's pockets throughout other parts of the city. Um, and you know, as a result of of lack of transit opportunities, lack of education, these areas what would be called you know marginally attached to the regional workforce. So you know, the the, the cycle of poverty that has been discussed for for, for decades has really taken hold in many of these communities. But that's the thing. I mean, th- these aren't new phenomenon either. I mean, th- these aren't. No, it's, it's been happening since the seventies. So. And so, so the reversal, the fact that we have some form of reversal of trend, uh, despite the fact that we still have entrenched chronic poverty in pockets of the city. Uh, it just really goes to show how the city could be doing if we could actually figure out ways of actually uplifting all communities in this conversation. Correct. And that's one of the areas I've worked in around the country. So some of the work I do in terms of real estate economic development looks at the issues of, of development of uh, innovation districts or research parks around universities, many of which are in cities. And you know, one of the things I'll say, having been involved in you know the East Baltimore uh, EBDI and the UMB Biopark for you know since before they were created, you know, the city actually does a very good job of trying to what are, through what are called community benefits agreements link these developments to the you know provide benefits to the other residents of the city uh, of the communities that are impacted in the, the city broadly. The city's also invested hugely in a pipeline of training providers like Biotechnical Institute of Maryland, Jumpstart for the Construction Trades, uh, Caroline Center, you know, you know, literally dozens of, of high-quality training providers that, you know, uh, the box system for uh, Baltimore area careers in healthcare to provide jobs for the hospital. So the you know, city has done a very good job of, of, of you know, requiring or incentivizing the creation of, of jobs for city residents, but not only just incentivizing it through the community benefits agreements that are driving both of these major redevelopments, you know, but also by providing the pipeline to provide you know, a, a pathway for people from the city into the jobs. When we talk about gentrification and what it means to the city, a, a lot of areas, particularly downtown, we are watching uh, movements of people, particularly college-educated and people who are college-educated in Baltimore who are then staying in Baltimore as well, which is a great trend. Yeah. Um, we're also watching how the demographics that are pushing those numbers up are generally younger and also white, also whites who are, who are then moving back to the area. Um, what role is gentrification playing in terms of the reshaping of Baltimore and, and how are people thinking about what this thing could and should look like? going forward? Well, one of the things I'll, I'll say about gentrification is it's not all white. Right? Uh, one of the things I ran for, for this uh, discussion today was data on race and education, race and employment, and changes in the city's population. And the population of uh, people with a bachelor's degree or above, you know, in terms of a city population that has been stable or declining, according to the census, uh, since since the depth of the recession, the number of uh, of, uh, of white persons with a college degree or above has increased by 15% in the city. But the gentrifiers are also African-American and, and, and other groups. Uh, the, the African-American population with a college degree had increased by 10% during that period as well. So in terms of gentrification, I, I, one of the things I was surprised is that it is not all white that's going on in the city. But, but clearly these neighborhoods you know, are, are being changed. Some of them are being changed you know, on the east side and the west side. Um, so the gentrifiers are coming in, and, and it's not necessarily, in fact, it's a good thing. I think for, you know, when, you know having been in Baltimore for 20-something years, um, you know, 20 years ago, people were saying, how do we get development back in the city? So now, you know, now that we have it coming back in the city, you know, many people in the communities are complaining, you know, you know, 
about the development. So, I mean, we really, in my opinion, have two choices. You can decline as a city uh, or or you can turn it around and and bring people back in the city. And those people are going to be, you know, possibly different than the people, you know, that that were there before. I mean, clearly the in-migration of of a Hispanic population – you know, to this nation is driving population growth in urban areas across the nation and in Baltimore as well. So, you know, it's different groups that are coming in. So when you're looking at cities, and, and you've had a chance to look at this from cities across across the board and across the nation, uh, what are when you talk about cities that are growing, cities that are thriving, cities that are also doing both of those things and also becoming increasingly diverse and inclusive, what are some cities that you think that we should have in our mind as we're thinking about models? Well, as I've said, having worked in many cities, is Baltimore, I think, does this above average in terms of through the, the use of community benefits agreements. Uh, you know, Baltimore is one of the largest majority African-American cities. It's it's had, has had an African-American mayor for decades or did at different times for decades. And the inclusion policies here are best in practice. I mean, I've worked in other places like St. Louis or Memphis or uh, Winston-Salem, where there aren't these, you know, combinations of, uh, of community benefits agreements that, you know, ask for local hiring, but more importantly, the pipeline that provide the jobs, uh, the people trained for the jobs that are being created. So I'd say Baltimore does a very good job. You know, people tend to beat up on Baltimore, and there's plenty of things to beat up on in Baltimore, but, you know, this isn't necessarily one of them. The city has a very proactive policy. The city has been strategic in its use of, of incentives to promote development, and it's asked that the local you know, business community you know, try to hire locally to benefit you know, from these, these incentives that are provided. In terms of anchor-driven economic development, hospitals, universities, again, the, the, the city's as good as anybody in it. You know, are there different programs in different places? You know, the Baltimore Integration Partnership here is like 14, 15 institutions working together to increase local purchases and local hiring. You know, that's as good as any of these programs anywhere around the country. So, I mean, I think, you know, Baltimore is in the benefit of having this change. I mean, the, it, it, for, for 30, 40 years, the city was in decline. Now things are improving and people are, you know, not, and again, the gains aren't evenly shared necessarily. But the question then becomes, you know, is the city worse for this? And I would say no. The city has a very good system for this. How do we make sure that this that these these benefits are equally shared. What, what are the things that we're not doing that you think the city should start thinking about, the state leadership start thinking about when it comes to making sure that these benefits are equally shared? I think one of the probably things that has been left on the table is the question of transportation. When you look at areas like Sandtown, um, work through that I, uh, the Baltimore Neighborhood and Educators Alliance that the Jacob France Institute has done, what they found is that those the population residing there has the least access to jobs, and as a result, they have the worst socioeconomic outcomes in terms of higher poverty rates, higher higher levels of vacancy in the neighborhood, whatever measure of distress you want to use. So the question, I think that, you know, we, as I said, Baltimore has the pipeline. MOED has done a very good job of providing training systems. The city is a great nonprofit training community. The anchors are good. The employers tend to try to hire locally. Uh, I think the missing element may be the question of transportation and how do you link these underserved communities, uh, you know, especially looking at West Baltimore, uh, how do you link them into these, these areas? You're listening to Future City, and we've been talking with Richard Clinch, who's the director of the Jacob France Institute at the University of Baltimore. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 
So today on this show, we've been asking tough questions about how to build wealth in communities of color. And part of what makes financial stability such a difficult goal to achieve for so many communities of color is that there's a long history of discrimination by financial institutions. Marceline White is our next guest. She's executive director of the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition, and she encounters these entrenched social issues daily. Marceline, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I just want to ask a question about the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition. What exactly is it and what exactly is the mission? Sure. Great question. Um, We're a statewide coalition of both individuals and organizations, and the mission is really to advance economic justice and financial inclusion across the state. And we do that through research that we do ourselves. We advocate in Annapolis for state policies that promote economic justice. We fight to stop bad things from happening in Annapolis. And we also work at the federal level and in Baltimore City on policies. Um, We also provide direct financial services through a financial counselor. And we do trainings in communities about how to advocate for your rights. And what's interesting uh, also is that these are not new phenomenon, right? There's a history of this, and there's a context of the history that has to be understood. Can you explain a little bit what, what the history of these issues are? Sure. So a lot of the things that we see, particularly in Baltimore City, is that um, some of the systemic problems are just that. They're the result of 20, 30 years of disinvestment in black communities, in communities of color. And because of this disinvestment that's embedded in policies, we see outcomes in our communities of color where people are paying more for basic goods like auto insurance or don't have access to credit and capital like other communities do. Um, and that's wrong. And and you also look at basic things like their ability to, if you're starting a business, your ability to gain capital or your ability to, uh, if there's a slowdown in the business, whatever, the ability to keep your business sustained. Absolutely. One of the things we hear a lot about and that we are also concerned about is food deserts and what happens when you don't have access to healthy food in your communities. But from our perspective, we really look at banking deserts and what happens when you don't have access um, to credit and wealth building opportunities in your community. You have it hurts your financial health. Um, Everyone needs access to good, sustainable products um, in their communities. And if people don't have banking branches or banks that are responsive to community needs, they end up having to turn to predatory high-cost products. You end up going to a check casher or a pawn shop instead of going to a bank. And if you don't have a banker in your community that knows the small businessmen and women, um, it's much harder to get credit. It's much harder to get a loan. And we see that. Um, We see a lot of hardworking men and women who start businesses, but they don't have the access they need to help them for the second or third year to really grow their business. And a lot of that is because um, if you look at bank branch patterns, they've left communities um, for, you know, some communities haven't had banks in 20 or 30 years. Others, we see bank branches closing. So we're working right now. um, Bank of America is closing a branch on Reisterstown Road, and it's the eighth bank branch they've closed in 10 years. Um, but what we've seen, if you look at the pattern of, of where they've closed, the bank branches they've closed are in 69% black neighborhoods. The branches they've kept open are in majority white neighborhoods. So clearly, especially with transit issues in Baltimore City, how are people going to get access to the good kind of credit they need? How are they going to get access to the good kind of home loans they need if they can't easily get to a bank branch? So we're... Um, mounting a challenge right now with the with the Bank of America branch to um, 
basically trigger a hearing to get people to sign on to a letter saying that we need investment in all of our communities across the city and the state. You can't close down areas and then not provide capital and access to sustainable credit to those communities. But but since we're talking about banking, you know, yeah. is, wasn't this what the Community Reinvestment Act was supposed to take care of? That is exactly what the Community Reinvestment Act was supposed to take care of. So the Community Reinvestment Act, which was started in 1977, was supposed to be a response to redlining. And so actually this bank challenge that we have, which is gonna which is on our website, um, which is www.marylandconsumers.org, talks about using the Community Reinvestment Act. So if we can get enough people to sign on to this letter saying the Bank of America's branching is discriminatory, we can trigger a hearing with the federal regulators. And then the Bank Bank of America will have to come up with a community plan on how they're going to provide credit and investment into communities where they've closed. So it's an important tool, but it's a tool that people have to use. That's the problem is it's very few people know what the Community Reinvestment Act is, and it, you have to use it. Um, or if they don't hear from us that this is a problem, they're not going to act. So we really need people to get engaged, um, come to a hearing if um, it comes to that, and talk about the community needs and really push Bank of America on how they're going to meet those community needs. It's amazing how for so many of these issues, uh, it is about just educating people Absolutely. about what's actually on the books uh, Absolutely. and where the rights are. It's about educating people, um, both about what's on the books and also about um, how to make change, how to organize to contact your legislators to make sure that they're engaged. Um, Are they coming to these community meetings? What are they doing about banking access? Um, And one of the things we find in the state is that, uh, you know, Maryland's a a fairly small state. If you get 20 calls into a legislator, um, they'll pay attention. So it doesn't take a lot to get them to pay attention to you, but you have to organize yourself and your neighbors to make some noise. And, you know, we we hire them. We vote them in, and they're supposed to respond to us as constituents. And so um, we really need to be on our, do our job and make sure they're responding and make sure they're hearing the problems in our communities and where there is um, – you know, lack of access to wealth, where we need wealth building opportunities, where we need reinvestment after decades of disinvestment, um, and to make sure that they're doing their job um, at the state level or at the federal level to help make sure that happens. So as we're coming up on a, on a we have a governor's election coming yes. up, uh, what type of things do you want to hear for everyone who's either running for a second term? or for anyone who wants to win their first term as governor. What are the type of things that you're going to want to hear from them to address these issues? Fabulous. I'm really glad you asked that. One of the things we want to hear about is what is their economic rights platform and how do they envision closing the racial wealth gap? So both economic rights for everyone. We know the rural areas are also struggling with different sets of problems, but we know that um, in black communities and communities of color, there's a long-term history of disinvestment and what are they planning to do to bring investment to communities. We also want to hear them talk about consumer protection. At the federal level, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has done a great job over the past seven years um, closing down predatory mortgages and high-cost toxic loans, um, stopping predatory debt settlement people. But those are being rolled back or threatened at the federal level. So what are they doing at the state level to protect consumers and looking at stopping these predatory financial products and services. We also really want to hear about um, looking at student loans and student lending. We know that education 
um, provides a pathway to opportunity, but only if people aren't so burdened with high-cost loans that um, it's insurmountable. And we know that um, we've had issues with for-profit schools in the state, and we've done some work um, trying to regulate those. But what else do they have planned to deal with student loan debt? Because you can't get rid of that in bankruptcy. So if you took out all this debt and you don't have a job um, in your field, you still have to pay back the debt. And that's you know, a huge burden for people that means they delay um, buying a house, they delay other goals, um, it affects their credit, you know, so there are huge issues there as well. So last question, Marceline, when, when people say, we think what you're talking about is, is it's class, mm-hmm. it's not race. What's your response when you hear people make the argument that this has nothing to do with race? Why, why are you bringing the word, why are you bringing race into this? Sure. And I'd say it's both and. These things are not, these things are not binary. Um, there, are, there are differences by, based on wealth. But if you look historically at um, wealth, wealth gaps, you know that the assets that um, African-American households have and the assets that white households have are dramatically different. If you look at pay scales, um, you know that there are dramatic differences and there are differences between black men and black women, between Hispanic men, Hispanic women, and certainly between white men and white women across the board. So this is not... the facts speak for themselves. If you look at the data, you know that the data tells the story that there are real differences. And again, those differences go back to policies that were made a long time ago that people are still feeling the effects of um, in terms of who has access to credit and who gets what kinds of loans. We know before the financial crisis, um, women-owned households in Prince George's County that were middle class, had great credit, were steered into toxic subprime loans. When they should have gotten good loans, they qualified for good loans, but you know they were steered into these other loans. Um, that's just wrong. And um, that has nothing to do with income. That has everything to do with targeting um, women who may not have had the education or the... Nobody knows these 25-page contracts, but they were steered into these loans by people who they thought were helping them and we're actually taking advantage of them. It's interesting. When people ask the question, they say, is it, is it race or class, or is it sex or class, or is it X, Y, and Z? Say the only right answer is yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's yes. Yes. All of those things. <laughs> yes. And to do good policy, you have to look at those things because we need to see where there's disinvestment and target policies and programs to communities that have been disinvested. Or if you know that women are suffering in a different way, that targets your policies and programs to address the people that are hurting most. And we all do better if the economy helps all of us. And right now, we're failing whole swaths of Baltimore City, whole areas of the state, because they're falling behind. And as a state, it's our obligation to do better, um, because when everyone when everyone does better, everyone does better. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly right. This is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and we've been having a great conversation with Marceline White, the executive director of the Maryland Consumer Rights Coalition. Marceline, this has been a joy. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank all of our guests for coming on the show today and for a fantastic conversation about an issue that has sat with Baltimore for a while, and we know for Baltimore to be better, we've got to make sure that we're tackling it. But before we take off, just a couple closing thoughts. Thriving cities don't become thriving by accident. When people tell stories about Austin or Pittsburgh or Denver or Nashville, these cities are not experiencing explosive growth because they fell into it. They had to be incredibly deliberate. 
Atlanta and Washington, D.C., amongst others, were cities that were fraught with economic disparities that were simply broken down by racial lines. The reason they were able to transform both their narrative and their realities is because they were intentional. As we've heard today, the level of inequity in the city of Baltimore didn't just happen. Our policies around transportation, access to capital, education, government contracting, other government allocations, and paternalistic philanthropy has made it such. Everyone talks about the remarkable assets that Baltimore has, our institutions of higher education, our location, etc. But our real asset is our people. And we need to make sure that everyone has access to wealth creation and generational stability, something the city has not seen for everybody. This will determine if we will become the city that everyone, including myself, believes that we actually can be. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My handle is at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Future City is also made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.